Have you ever wondered, what are some signs that it's time to go to therapy? Well, in today's episode, we go into just that. I got to interview Logan Cohen. You might recognize him from TikTok and his really cool, entertaining, short-form videos on therapy, relationships, trauma, healing. He is a proud family man to both human and fur babies, as well as a practicing marriage and family therapist, an approved supervisor with American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy, and a level two clinical certified trauma professional. He has a counseling practice in Charlotte, North Carolina, with multiple practitioners and also a published author as of 2021 with a book titled How to Human Up in Modern Society, Heal Yourself and Save the World. So we get into so many cool things in this episode from relationships, when's a good time to start dating again, how to find a good therapist, when's time to go to therapy, and the stages of our healing journey. Welcome to the show. My name's Sophia. I'm the host of the shit show in my 20s. My goal is to maybe make your 20s a little less of a shit show with some of the things you learn in this podcast. So without any further ado, let's get started. Thank you so much, Logan, for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. I'd love to start. Tell me about your 20s. Feel free to include any shit show moments you might resonate with. Let's start sure. there. I was a wild adolescent. So my 20s, especially early 20s and late teens, were uh, pretty shit showy, I guess, as as you might put it. I was always good at school. That was something that I was always able to rely on for uh, some kind of like sense of validation from the adults, even from a really early age. I was early to read. I was was just kind of quick to the uptake on academics. And so I really leaned into that. But outside of school, it started using substances really, really early, kind of like one of those ages where it's almost a little heartbreaking to hear. You know, you're like, oh my God, you're a kid. Like, yeah, it was. And you got addicted to uh, alcohol and, and pot very, very early uh, and was was exploring really powerful psychedelics really early as well. Just kind of looking for any way to get outside of myself and escape. And I'm, I'm glad I ended up going the route of, of psychedelics with some other routes that I could have gone as you uh, inevitably down that road, there, there's really just kind of this universal truth that you are just a very small part of this huge ecosystem where time doesn't exist and like all there is is love. So you can either, you know, lean out and figure out your own stuff or participate in the rat race. And I, I chose the, uh, the, the first and you know, really kind of grateful in hindsight for how a lot of that worked out. Ended up going to University of Georgia for undergraduate school. Grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. And Athens, Georgia, you know, University of Georgia Bulldogs, there's this old kind of uh, saying around campus. And I think it's kind of understood about the school. It's a, it's a drinking town with a football problem. And I very much fit into that, not necessarily the football problem part, but I was just kind of this rough around the edges hippie kid that was going to classes, usually inebriated, like when 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 I was going to class and showing up and turning in my assignments and 
taking tests and I would perform really well. But outside of school, I was a mess. Seven really chaotic relationships and, you know, either on tour with with bands and you know, like not sleeping very much or kind of like shut in my apartment and kind of look like, kind of like depression. Another area of life that I was leaning into a lot was I grew up playing a lot of music and I played electric violin and some Southern rock bands. That's how I paid the bills at school. So it was, I was really just like in subjectively at that time, I thought I was like living the life and I was, I was really just a hot mess. I ended up graduating on time. I was 22 and I knew that my addiction stuff was at a level where if I just tried to jump into the traditional workforce and and do the thing, it would have just gotten worse and worse and worse. And that scared me. So instead, I veered off and I took a job working with adjudicated youth. And these were kids coming down from youth detention centers and pediatric uh, psychiatric hospitals and living in groups together. It would be like me with a group of 15, 17 year old guys, like about 10 of them and, and me. And I was facilitating daily life with them where they were learning to live pro-socially with each other in a community-ish setting again, but with like no electricity in the Appalachian foothills living in cabins that we built ourselves with hand tools. And I got sober and uh, discovered mindfulness practices, chopping wood and sweeping my tent and learning to, to meditate and tune into myself to stay regulated enough as I was dealing with all the shenanigans happening. And I fell in love with that work. Ended up staying in the woods for about three years. That's when the bulk of my shit show ended. And then from there, I went out to Portland, Oregon to study family therapy. I was really focused on like, where are these kids coming from? And that's where I want to get into and kind of help repair the bridge so they stop falling into the river, as, as Desmond Tutu would have said. Yeah, that's the short and skinny of it. Wow. That must have been so interesting living in the woods. This actually seems like a really cool experience to be able to have that. And like, was that experience of you going through all that in your 20s really what led up to you becoming a therapist? Do you feel like if you would have had like another background, would you still want to be in therapy? I'm curious how that kind of evolved for you. I'm sure it did have a have a role to play. I can also tell you that that's really all I ever knew. I tried to study different things because I was also looking around and being like, gosh, like I'm the only man in this class. And uh, you know, the, the, all the, the, the pretty oppressive masculinity constructs that I was participating in, like I felt kind of lame and like there was something wrong with me for doing it and being good at it and understanding those things. So I, I went like pre-law for a semester. I hated it. I went pre-med for a semester. I hated it. Tried to study business and finance. I hated it and just kind of ended up coming back to what I do now. Um, I think growing up in the, I grew up in an abusive household. There was a lot that I was trying to escape from. I wasn't just like, you know, uh, everything, nothing happens in a vacuum. You know, there, there are reasons for what I was doing. And in a setting like that, you learn to kind of turn yourself off and, and dissociate technically is the term from your own feelings and needs and become pretty hypervigilantly attuned to other people and, and what's going on in the environment. And, and I learned pretty early on that I could lean into that gear and 
what it resulted in was being like really intuitive and being able to connect with people really quickly and, and, and facilitating processes of healing in really dynamic, dysfunctional, chaotic environments where other people were so freaked out that they really couldn't engage in professionally with, with much proficiency. I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie too. And I went into, into community mental health where I worked for the first 10 or 12 years of my career and my uh, shtick, I guess the, the Yiddish word, but like my, my routine was basically, I would go into these settings and uh, seek out working with the most dangerous, dysfunctional folks and places. I would put myself in these extraordinarily high risk settings. And, you know, the, looking back, I the, the selfishly kind of like got off on it. Like it, I was very comfortable with this really high level of adrenaline and sought it out to some degree, even in those settings. At a certain point, you know, I got married and started my own family. And I kind of looked at myself and was like, look, like I can't, I can't die in the trenches. Like I would have been willing to before. So I, I, I got to make this sit a little bit more still and kept doing my own work and was like, okay, it's time to bring down my central nervous system for a lot of different reasons in a lot of different ways. And I'm curious, like your thoughts on, I feel like sometimes it could seem overwhelming to start going to therapy. Like if you have a bunch of things to work on, maybe you're kind of scared to bring everything up and kind of sure. open that Pandora box. What sure. tips do you have for people at the beginning who may be a little intimidated by like the process? To embrace it as part of the process. If we're leaving our comfort zone, it's going to be scary or it's going to feel insecure in whatever arena, whether you're getting into the gym and you want to learn how to deadlift right or, you know, whether you're like any time that you're leaving something that you're very familiar with, there are going to be those emotional experiences associated with them. And I would encourage you to kind of try to uh, reframe them in your mind as natural byproducts of growth. Courage isn't doing things without any sense of fear. Courage is doing it scared, is holding fear by the hand and going in anyway. Otherwise, that's just, if you're not scared of something that's that far outside of your comfort zone, then, then there's something wrong with your brain. Like that, that's not healthy. So it's, it's a, it's a natural byproduct of intentionally leaving your comfort zone. And I would encourage you to think about that as a good thing. And, and also take into consideration that the, the person or people that you're going to be seeking out for help and you know, need support from should be able to attune to that pretty quickly and help you feel as comfortable as you can and find the right pace for you and, and have a sense of compassion and understanding with you in that space. Mm. I love the reframe of putting it back towards growth in our journey and how that's going to go and hinder our growth by not taking that next step. And when you're starting that process and starting to find a therapist, what do you feel like are some keys of like you found the right therapist, like things to be like aware of in that process? There are probably a lot of different answers to that. And the thing about, you know, therapists is, is it's kind of like artists. No two ones are exactly alike. And you can have all kinds of different types of classical training and different types of modalities and mediums of work. However, when it comes down to it, the human being that you're encountering in that process is one of the most important parts. And 
what you should look out for. And when it comes down to it, the, the most important thing is that they can help you hold your discomfort. They can do that with you, that it, it doesn't feel like me and them as separate entities, that it feels like we, and that you have someone with you in your corner that can't necessarily go in and fight the dragon with you, but that you can come out at any time and and replenish yourself and you can like really imagine them behind you as as you're doing this. Yeah, it makes the dragon a little less daunting. We can have someone to talk to about it. Takes and a like, Yeah, for sure. And like, what are some signs that maybe like it's time to go to therapy? You're experiencing the same type of pain over and over again. Mm. Pain, pain is supposed to be a teacher. It's supposed to be an indication that we should pay attention and, and prioritize our attention to a specific area. And if that's happening over and over again in the same way, and you're not able to figure out how to do something different in order to get a different result, then you are participating in your own suffering, albeit unconsciously. And how do you, let's say you have like a friend or family member and you notice like that same pattern in them that it's kind of like time to go to therapy, but like maybe they're not, they're kind of hesitant or they think it looks bad if they start going to therapy or they have some idea in their head. How do you kind of encourage that person to take that first step? Or is it kind of something that you can't really do too much? It's like their own process. You really can't do too much. What you can do is be clear with them about what you're seeing and experiencing with them and be a bit of a, a broken record about like, hey, still going to say you should go to therapy. Okay, like, I, I can't be your therapist. I like being your friend, but this is way beyond my scope of what I can do with you. And at the same time, when someone starts withdrawing, if you just pursue more heavily, they're going to withdraw more heavily. That's just the, the nature of, of relational dynamics. And sometimes it also might mean pulling back from somebody so that you can make sure that you're not helping them participate in their own suffering. Mm. And that's, that's all that someone will understand at the end of the day. Yeah. I'm not going to help you hurt you. I'm not going to talk about this with you again. I've already said everything that I have to say. And like for the 10th time, you should go to therapy. What a, like, it breaks my heart to hear you talking about this again and to hear that you're experiencing this again. But I, I don't want to give you the impression that this is some type of healing process. It is not. And I I love how you do so many like videos about like dating and like when you should start dating and kind of like the dating process. So I'm curious if you could go into like when and if you should start dating and your thoughts on that. After what? If you wouldn't mind my asking. Like after a breakup, maybe a divorce, <laughs> something happened, like if it's time again. Sure. At the end of the day, the point of relationships are to help us grow. We're humans. We're fundamentally social and collective. If you are experiencing pain and want to escape your pain, that's not a good enough reason for dating. If you are ready to seek out healthy connection with people again and consider building something again with someone else, it's time to start dating. But especially if you've been through an abusive relationship or something like this, before you do start dating more actively, it will be important for you to redevelop a sense of trust with yourself about what you're looking for and your ability to set boundaries with other people. Part of the healing process will take place interpersonally, especially if you've been wounded interpersonally. 
So if all that you know how to do interpersonally and relationally is continue repeating survival responses, you're again just participating in your own suffering. And I'm curious, like on your thoughts on, let's say you've been in like a toxic relationship and you tend to, you feel like you're starting to heal. You feel like you're starting to get better, but you feel like sometimes you do bring up some of those behaviors from that past relationship or like scared with trust, like your thoughts on, yeah, being able to start on working on that. And can you work on that while you're in a relationship or is that maybe too far? (laughs) No, that's in some ways that's, it's the healing is not about avoiding being triggered. Healing is about having enough knowledge of yourself to identify when that's happening and, and reframe this as a call to pay attention to and to work through an artifact of suffering from the past in real time in the present with someone who actually does care about and respect you. You said something that I kind of want you to touch deeper on is healing is not avoiding your triggers. Mm. I'm curious if you could go more into that because I found that so interesting about sometimes we like to kind of avoid them and your thoughts there on how do we it's not like we're necessarily wanting to trigger ourselves all the time but also not wanting to avoid them I'm curious how your your thoughts there so being triggered is just you running into some type of experience or perception or you know stimuli would be the stimulus in your environment or with someone else that reminds your central nervous system of being wounded in the past. And if that's happening, then that experience of pain in the present is your central nervous system reminding you like, hey, there's still something here that doesn't need to be this painful because it's actually not happening in the present. This is still something that that we're holding on to and we're bracing for something that already happened. It's it's a, a a call to adventure. It's 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 a it's a call to um, paying attention to something that can be healed. So, for instance, I grew up in um, really chaotic, dysfunctional household. My mom was abusive, and <laughs> I remember sometimes, kind of earlier in my marriage, we would you know, both come home from work, and she would have had a stressful day with some peers. And as we do, you know, like venting about it, be like, you know, that, uh, done. and she's like, you know, angry about how people had treated her. And I would, we were sitting next to each other. I would notice myself having this going like, without even thinking about it, avoidant and, and dismissive kind of fear-based thing going on with just angry woman. And I, I remember several times being like, hey, I really want to hear what's going on with your day. And I really want to be there for you. And every cell in my body is like recoiling at the amount of like nonverbal intensity that you're having about this. Could, like, could you keep telling me about it at a lower volume? Or like, could, like, I, re- I really want to hear it, but it, like I, and, and my central nervous system needed to see me advocating for myself in that position while she needed to experience me containing space with her and being emotionally available, showing compassion for that. And she's someone who 
respects me and loves me. So she she understood and kind of did what she could to bring herself down, you know, a notch or two while while talking about it. And then over time, I got less and less bothered by it as my central nervous system watched me facilitating this experience differently and not relying on survival responses and instead standing in my integrity. I got less and less triggered by it until eventually it didn't bother me at all. And how are you able to like have composure and be able to keep your sanity while you're triggered? Because sometimes I feel like it just kind of like throws you off the rails. Um, Practice. Practice. It is a learned skill. And if your central nervous system has had trials by fire and learned to rely on survival responses, aka being triggered, you're going to need to be willing to expose yourself to similar enough environments to heat up your central nervous system enough to be malleable and then to you know, practice self-regulation skills. And then on the other side, respond different. A metaphor that I use a lot for this is like being a blacksmith. In, in order to make that sword from a new alloy, you have to get multiple metals hot enough to soften them. If they become so soft, they melt into the stove, you lose them they can't retain their shape at all so it's more heat it up shape it put it in the water cool it down when you're ready when 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 they're rigid enough again put it back in the furnace heat it up until you're malleable enough shape it not so much that it becomes a liquid and you lose it just enough that you can shape it cool down again using the self-regulation skills Hmm, such a great metaphor what are those self-regulation skills It really depends on what type of central nervous system response that you're having. If it's more of a fight or flight reaction, it's going to be about down-regulating your central nervous system. If it's more of a freeze response, it's going to be about up-regulating your central nervous system and using largely physical practices to do so. Because when, when you get dysregulated enough and you're beyond your window of tolerance, There's not enough blood flow in your brain to influence what's happening with thoughts and emotion. Top-down processing, it's not going to happen. There's not enough blood in your frontal lobe and in the prefrontal cortex of your brain. So it's about engaging in activities that either help you down-regulate or up-regulate that let your body know that you are not, in fact, in war and that it can trust you again and then blood flow returns to your brain and you can focus more on the specific type of response Hmm. so many helpful life skills i love that you go into all this and i'm curious for like when you're starting to date someone what are some of like the green flags that are like okay let's continue this process let's go on another date (laughs) sure people's words and actions should be aligned You know, actions do speak louder than words. However, it should all be pretty consistent. People should be, you should be looking for folks that have a high degree of their own emotional intelligence, that they can experience a full range of emotions, vulnerable ones included, and consciously work through them openly with you instead of the alternative being projecting them onto you, you know, making assumptions that you should be thinking or feeling exactly as they are and, and reacting at you to try to force compliance from you for sharing their same you know, thoughts, feelings, and opinions. That'd be the more projective response. Consistency would be an, an, another piece of that. Yeah, I'd say those are the top three. Consistency, 
alignment between what we say and what we do, having evidence that they can get vulnerable and not make it about you. Or what are some signs that they, that we or someone else really has that emotional maturity? The first and foremost is vulnerability. That, and by vulnerability, I mean that they are comfortable having ownership about their fear, pain, insecurity, and sadness. They're called primary emotional experiences. It's always what what happens first for our limbic system, for the part of our brain that deals with emotion. And these are essential for creating authentic intimacy, connection with others. Um, And when we know how to do that enough, we don't have to rely on anger or fight responses to to back people off of us. You You can be very vulnerable while also very assertive at the same time. And like the old saying, do no harm and take no shit. A a good servant leader should be able to do this. A safe person should be able to do this. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, why sometimes do we know maybe like something's not good for us? Or let's say we know a relationship's not good for us. We say, oh yeah, we're able to be able aware of that, but we stay in that situation. Part of our comfort zone. Um, Based on our, our relational tuning, our experiences and relationships up to that point, which inevitably to some degree always goes back to family of origin. And my comfort zone, I guess if we go even deeper with it, it's the, those core beliefs that we developed, usually a lot of times beginning in family of origin, about what we should expect from the world and from other people. So things might be very painful, we might be participating in our own suffering, but if our core beliefs reflect fundamental assumptions that that is how the world works and what we should be up for if we are going to remain what we deem as connected to others and keep doing it Hmm. no matter how painful it gets well and how are we able to like retrain ourselves if we're just used to seeing that dysfunctional maybe our family relationship or we're used to seeing that and that's what we kind of think they should all be like the the kicker there is we cannot fully retrain ourselves if that trauma has taken place in relationships, part of the healing will have to take place in relationships. And it might start with going and working with a professional. That is a relationship, albeit a very professional one that is boundaried and has specific processes and procedures to follow to keep everyone safe and keep things consistent within it. Most of the people that I work with that are recovering from abusive relationships, some of the first times that they realize they've had permission to be vulnerable and be attuned to and not be attacked is while we're working together. Like a lot of the women that I've worked with, a lot of times the the first time that they hear a man be vulnerable with them are times that that all disclose, gosh, that that's really sad. Like I I get sad when I hear you say that. Like I feel really protective towards you, right? Stuff like that. Mm. And I'd love for if you could go into like the stages of the healing journey and how that's mm. kind of laid out. So a lot of times when there, there was a video that I did a while ago that was pretty popular where I was uh, calling a phase, the uh, cocoon phase of the healing journey. At the end of the day, when people talk about spiritual awakening, what they're talking about psychologically is auditing and re-blacksmithing, if you will, from the analogy, the metaphor I used before about making a sword, their core beliefs and altering them from being scarcity focused towards abundance, from an external locus of control, psychologically speaking, to an internal locus of control. So 
I mean, initially there is going to be a lot of fear and insecurity about your healing and about like what this could actually be. And if you actually want to do it, that is a part of the healing journey. It's, you know, you're, you're receiving a call to adventure over and over again, maybe 10, 20, a hundred times before you actually answer. Um, if, if you can remember, you know, the story of the Lord of the Rings, like how many times did Gandalf knock on Frodo's door before he actually went out and left the Shire? It's the same thing. After this, we'll you know, need to accept some mentors into our lives to help us uh, be supported and backfill pieces of information that we were missing in our own confirmation bias that are not going to just like miraculously pop up in our own brain because we're coming at it from core beliefs that are focused on scarcity. It's, it's not just a village that takes to heal a child. That's, that's about human beings. Then at some level, there's going to be a confrontation with the your innermost fears and insecurities with the dragon, as I was referencing before, where there are going to be some pieces of information about the world and yourself and what it all means and what you're here to do that are finally made obvious to you. And then after this, there tends to be that cocoon phase that I reference where we need to just like rest for a bit. And we try to interact with people who we did before. And after making all these updates in our own psyche and our core beliefs, we're going to realize that we're really just not aligned anymore. And there's a lot of loss associated with this. Just like the story of the Phoenix or the allegory of Christ, it's, you know, the, the, the circle of life is inevitably about death and rebirth. And then it becomes about fighting our way back home to self, where we can stand to share this elixir, these, these pieces of, of understanding about ourselves or the world in order to empower ourselves, empower our communities, and really step into the light of our purpose, what we're here to do in this life. Hmm. Kind of sounds like a hero's journey, the way you put it. It is. That's so cool. That's why your 20s are a shit show, is because American culture doesn't have a coming of age process. They tried to make college one. That's a shit show. It's really just like hammering people into being cogs so that they can fit into corporate settings. We don't go on walkabout anymore. We don't go hunt the gray wolf and bring back its coat anymore. We're, we're missing this very important journey. And it, the onus becomes on us. If you were to go back in time and talk to your 20-year-old self, what would you want to tell him? Or if you want to tell him nothing at all, that's an option as well. Probably tell him to stop smoking weed and drinking earlier. <laughs> and that, that escapism isn't going to make any of it go away. Mm -hmm. Time to pick your poison. I love it. Straight to the point. Awesome. Emma, thank you so much for doing this today. Sure. Sure. It was a pleasure to, to rap with you for a little bit and you know, talk about what I do and, and my understanding of it. Awesome. And where can we find you? Where can we connect with you online? Sure. You can find me online at uh, logancohen.com is my personal website. And there's information about um, a book that I wrote called How to Human Up in Modern Society, Heal Yourself and Save the World. As you realized earlier, there's a, a kind of reformatting the importance of understanding the hero's journey in, in, in present time, what that looks like in real life. 
you can see a lot of uh, little snippets and pieces of information on social media, on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook, a little bit on YouTube, um, either at my name, Logan Cohen, or at the handle that I tend to use, uh, Healing Humanity 777. And I've also created this online curriculum specifically for men that is kind of around deconversion from unhealthy constructs of masculinity and more towards emotional integration and, and uh, you know, more of those servant leadership uh, principles, kind of reframing male privilege as a, a call to action to, to look out for the human race. Mm, it seems like a great curriculum. That's cool. I'm trying. <laughs> cool. Thank you guys so much for listening. I love if you can leave me a review on iTunes. Please feel free to share it with any friends you think the story would resonate with. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.